<clears throat> there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. And there was born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 she-asses and a very great household. So that this man was the greatest of all men of the East. And his sons went and feasted in their houses every one his, his day and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And it was so when the days of feasting were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Now there was a day that the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord, and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Dost Job fear God for naught? Hast thou then made a hedge about him, about his house, and about all that hath he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to the face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. And there was a day when his daughters, sons and daughters, were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And there came a messenger unto Job and said, The oxen were ploughing and the asses feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain thy servants with the edge of the sword, and I am only escaped alone to tell thee. While his sons, while he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The fire of God is fallen from heaven and hath burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The Chaldeans made <clears throat> out three bands and fell upon the camels and carried them away, yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking, Wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young men and they are dead. 
and I only am alone. I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped <clears throat> and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. I've read the first chapter. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. <clears throat> Let's kneel to worship. Heavenly Father, we come before thee now on bended knees, knowing that thou dost hear. Knowing not only that thou dost hear, but that thou dost care. Thou art touched, as the scripture says, with the feeling of our infirmities. And Heavenly Father, we look back at this account of Job and the calamities that befell him and then we consider our own lives and how we often complain when small things are put upon us or we feel hard done by. But how much more do we know from thy word, Heavenly Father? How much more hast thou taught us? How much more hast thou revealed to us? Thou hast sent thy Son that we may understand the heart of the Father. Thou hast sent him not only that we would understand, but to provide remission of sin, redemption and new life and knowing all these things and yet sometimes still we forget heavenly father help us to realize not only how great thou art but how small we are to give thee glory and worship even as we strive to do this morning to realize that as job saw it none of us are here forever we came naked into this world and we will leave without anything as well and so, Heavenly Father, let us glorify Thee and honor Thee while we have life and breath. For one day, we all shall see Thee face to face. Heavenly Father, as has already been mentioned this morning, we want to lift up in prayer unto Thee all those that are going through difficulties. Many in our congregations now are sick. Many others are experiencing other difficulties and have lost loved ones. The list is great and seemingly growing longer. But Heavenly Father, thou art still on the throne. We trust that thy will is still being done. And so Heavenly Father, as it has happened in other times, that when the saints of God suffered, they turned to thee, we wish to do the same. And so Heavenly Father, we want to lift up in prayer unto thee also those that are grieving. We want to weep with those that weep and rejoice with those that do rejoice. Be with us now, Heavenly Father, Open thy word to us in a special way that every heart would understand and be with our brother as he would share from the same. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Indeed, we've come already almost 
two years into this pandemic. And many things have happened. We've seen several people that we know that have succumbed to the virus, <clears throat> that have gone to their reward, and many have suffered greatly. Some are suffering at the very moment greatly to this, what we could call a pestilence. And as we were praying last week, we met three times in the kitchen of Strasbourg Road Church. And um, I can't say that I've been at too many prayer meetings as they were there, where people's souls were poured out. There was weeping. There was confession, as Brother Edmund mentioned last week. There was heart-wrenching prayers of grief, of compassion for Brother Sasha and others, and now they're enumerating even more, that are going through very difficult times. And as I knelt behind the bench, questions came to my mind. When we were in the prayers that I heard and that I, that I also gave, there were things said like, God, we know you will heal him or you can heal him. God, we know if it's your will that you have the power to do so and we believe you but if it's not your will and so forth and again the questions come to us just like they come to many in this world and many in this world because people do die because people are subject to pain and suffering will immediately go and do exactly what it says in the last verse, what Job didn't do, they would charge God foolishly. There was a man back in the mid-80s by the name of Harold Kushner. He was a Jewish rabbi. And you maybe know where I'm going with this. He wrote a book which became a world bestseller, 160 odd pages, but it hit number one. And the reason it did is because it impacts everyone in this world. Why do bad things happen to good people was the title of the book. And you've heard this before, it became a, a household uh, name or a, a, a phrase. Why do bad things happen to good people? And he was a rabbi. He would teach. He would counsel the Jewish people that would come to the synagogue or to wherever he taught. But when it came to him, the reason he wrote this book 
was because he had a son that from the age of three contracted a disease called progeria. It was the disease that is an aging disease that makes you age very rapidly. And you've seen pictures of this on the internet, photographs of people with shriveled faces. They've lost their hair. They look like, in some people's views, aliens. And his son got this, and he suffered until he was 14, and he died. And now he began to question his own understanding of God, even though he taught it. And he came to some conclusions in his mind. And I think I don't think they were absolute 100%, but this is where, where he was leaning to. Either God is all-loving, but not all-powerful, or God is all-powerful, but not all-loving. Which one is it? And which one would he choose if he had to, to choose? I think it's a false dilemma, but we'll get into that, God willing. He chose the road of God is all loving, but does not force his power upon everyone. I think some will have fine concurrence with that. This goes back into now, and I don't want to get into that area, but free will versus determinism. God forces everything on the earth, or God allows things to happen and gives man free will. So he went through his book, and some of the main points are this, that although God doesn't stop things from happening, although God doesn't cause things to happen, because we often say God is not the author of sin, God doesn't create evil in the sense of injustice, because that would go against his character. God is not that type of all-powerful God, but God is the God that, that, as one author was questioned this, you know, where was God in Auschwitz? And this author responded, God was next to the victim. God was with the victim. But God did not create this evil of genocide. And he believes that a lot of the predicaments that man gets into are his own doing. And we often think about that, you know, what will solve world hunger? It is being, it's believed that the wealth of the world could solve world hunger. But it belongs to a very small percentage of the wealthy in this world. We have the means, but we don't use it. He said that if we would pay our uh, medical researchers what we pay quarterbacks and the left fielders, then we could find a solution to many of our ills. 
And there's a lot of truth in that. But that doesn't mean that God is going to reveal to everyone how to cure immediately cancer. We could find a lot of um, questions in our minds, even in the scriptures, as to why things happened. Because if we were God, we wouldn't do it that way. Why would God allow innocent children? Just recently, what was it, New York, how many, nine kids? I don't know how many kids perished in the fire. Jesus had a solution or had an answer to something like that. Because the Jews were saying, in Luke, I think, chapter 13, the Jews were saying, are these men greater sinners than all upon whom the Tower of Siloam fell? Or what about those who Pilate mingled their blood with their sacrifices? Were they sinners greater than all sinners? Or Jesus responded because he knows what they were thinking. He says, no. But except you repent, this will happen to you likewise. God will allow things to happen like that. God will not intervene or intersect humanity. I think we all have to confess that we are very limited in knowing and understanding why God allows good things to happen to bad people. But one thing we have to be very sure of, that God is good all the time. You know, the, the scripture in Romans 8, 28, we all seem to know, we should know by heart by now, has been mentioned from this pulpit uh, so often. But all things work for the good unto them that are the called according to his purpose. And so we say, if all things work for the good, why are bad things happening? The real question is here, whose good is this in Romans 8, 28? Who do we ascribe this good to? Is it for my good? Or is it for God's good? Because my good may be different than God's good. And there's a mystery involved in that. We don't know. Those that may have been cursing because they couldn't get downtown uh, New York that day on 9 11. Because they had a, a very important meeting and it, it involved a huge amount of money. May have been cursing and swearing, whatever they, they may have been doing, until they saw what happened. And then they thought, what a blessing. I was spared from that. There's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of... And therefore, we dare not charge God foolishly. With we, when we see things happen the way they do. And we're in the middle of this pandemic. Harold Kushner went on to say, when he was 16, his mother forbade him to go swimming in Brooklyn. Bad mother. Killjoy. Everybody else was doing that. Well, the reason she stopped them from going swimming in Brooklyn when he was 16 was because there was a big um, spread of polio.
and the vaccine wasn't developed or it wasn't uh, uh, perfected, whatever it was, but they will refrain from doing something that they enjoyed doing, which they thought was good, and in retrospect, he realized how a blessing it was. We, we have a brother in Argentina that succumbed to this disease, Brother Ruben Gava. He didn't receive the polio vaccine, and he had a, a deformity in his shoulder. He visited us many, many years ago in the old church. So we may say, you know, the government's like this and the government's like that. Or we may say, you know, it's not fair, but we may find the pros and the cons. And I don't want to get into that. But what I'm saying is there's a lot of mystery and complexity in the plight of man, in, in man's predicament. But one thing one can be assured of. is that it happened at the fall. We are fallen creatures. And God said that the day in which they disobeyed his command to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall die. The earth was cursed. And that's why we have Romans 8, where it talks about the creation was subject to vanity. Groaning and moaning and pleading for the day of relief, of respite. As Job pleaded for the day of his change. That's one thing we can be sure of. God didn't tell them to eat the fruit. He said not to eat the fruit. How does that apply to us today? This story of Job. He was a man that was perfect. He was a good person. In Harold Kushner's views and his understanding of the Bible. By the way, he never gave up on, on the Bible. He never gave up on God. He, he defends God's and his direction, but he has a different view of how God thinks perhaps why he does what he does. Job was a man that feared the Lord. He eschewed evil. We just recently heard of the sad news of the passing of our brother Tom Surance. And if you go on his wife's Facebook page, you'll see about 200 comments of, 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 of praise, of a good testimony for his life. Who is kind and gentle and, and, and wise and, and I put my own in. The things that I learned from him. Yet he succumbed to this. He's gone the way of all flesh. The one thing that Kushner doesn't believe in, he doesn't believe in a real, at least the way we understand it, heaven and hell. Basically, you pay for your sins on this earth by what you do and the things that happen to you. We don't believe that. Jesus never taught that. If anyone talked about hell, it was Jesus Christ. He talked about hell the most 
of all the New Testament writers. There will be a day of reckoning. There will be a judgment day. There will be a day in which God will judge every person that ever lived upon this earth. And there will be a time when his saints will be taken into glory. Paul says that the the things that we suffer in this time are not worthy to be compared with the things that are eternal, the temporal things. You cannot even compare with the things that are eternal. And what we suffer now, you cannot compare to the glory that will be revealed to his people. But these things happen here and now. And what Harold Kushner said was people in their insurance policies, companies say these are acts of God. You heard about the volcano in the Tonga area in in the Pacific? Its repercussions and, 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 and consequences were felt all the way to Alaska and all the way down to New Zealand and to Japan and titles, uh, high tides coming in in every country, destruction on the Isle of Tonga. It happened and affected the whole world. And they would say, this is an act of God. There are things that happen and they will blame God for it. They will blame God for it because all this, this destruction the tsunamis in the Indonesian area, was it 15, 20 years ago? If God loved the world, he wouldn't have done it. He's saying that's taking the name of God in vain. That God forced things to happen. I'm not saying he did or he didn't, but this was his words. Because everything bad happens, the, point, the finger is pointed at God. And for once, in the New Testament, if you will, the Apostle Paul says very plainly, and he was repeating what David said in the Psalms, that your name may be justified, that God may be justified. We justify God when we say God was always right. God was right all along for my sins, for what I've done, for the destruction, for what's happening on the world. When people say God is dead, what, that's, a, that's a, a profane and sacrilegious uh, pronouncement, blasphemous. Paul says, when we come to Christ, we justify God. We vindicate God. We confess. No, it's not with God. All the evil and the destruction and all the pandemics and so forth. Don't blame God for things that are not attributable to him. I don't know how much. Now God does intersect into the human predicament. He does do things on the earth. Don't get me wrong. I don't think uh, that Kushner wants to get that wrong either. That God at times will do things. As the Bible says. But he will not go against his own character to do that. And this is where Calvinism, I believe, has got it all wrong. 
where Calvin said that even babies that are born, that have not been elected and predestined to, to, to uh, salvation, they must have done something ignominious in the womb in order to somehow find justice with babies that are not elected. No such thing in the Bible. And people will invent doctrine and theories and, and, and just because... Now they can understand God. Now they've got God under control. They know what's going on. So if we break it down, when we talk about discernment, I remember a long time ago we had a, a forum on discernment, Brother Edmund and I, in camp. And the word discern really means to take apart. You take things apart. When things look so complicated, you take them apart and, and analyse each component individually. You break things down into chewable chunks. We've, this, we've, <clears throat> we've talked about what happens to a righteous man. A perfect man. By the way, he wasn't perfect in the sense that he was sinless. He did accuse God. That God was cruel to him when he had his miserable companions come to him and started telling him why these things were happening to him. You know, God wouldn't do this to someone that was perfect, that wasn't sinning. You must have done something to offend God, to violate his commandments. And they came one by one. You know what? I believe they were sincere. They were his friends. I believe that they were sincere, but they were sincerely wrong. Because they thought they knew God. But Job opted not to charge God foolishly for 20 or 30 chapters. He, he, he held in. And finally, he... He broke down and says, God, you've been cruel to me. He used those words. There are bad things that happen to us that are a cause of our own errors, our own sin, our own choices. When we build a foundation, for example, on a marriage and we're not building on the principles of God, we're not following God's prescription for marriage. And all we do is go for looks or all we do is go for money or all we do is go for an escape from my current predicament and we build on a false foundation and then Later on, things happen, the cracks in the foundation get bigger and our house comes crumbling down. Do we then say, God, why didn't you save my marriage? Oh, you want God to save you when you're in trouble, but you don't want to listen to him at the beginning. And we see that. Children growing up. When you tell your children, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. 
You're going to harm yourself. You're going to be led astray. You're going to be deceived. And they say, no, we know better. And then comes the time, judgment day on this earth, when they get into themselves a very difficult predicament, whether it's drug addiction, whether it's alcoholism, whether it's a broken relationships. And then they, some will humbly say, mum and dad taught me right, father knows best. And some will continue to go against that grain and continue to self-destruct. Krishna said that mankind today, they spend half of their life destroying their body on drugs, alcohol, cigarettes, cosmetics, whatever he said. And the second half of their life, they spend their money on fixing their bodies for the sins they've committed. He says they're reaping what they sow. And that's a biblical principle. We reap what we sow. There's another thing that happens. May not be our fault. But it could be like my friend in Australia when I went to visit him. He had another friend who was ready to get married. And his fiancée was struck by a drunk driver and killed. Where is God now? Why didn't God protect her? He could have. So why didn't he? It shows that it was a bad decision by the drunk driver to get drunk. We, we know of this, the news story that happened in a few years ago. A very wealthy son of a rich man decided to drive from the airport drunk and he hit a van full of five people, killed, I don't know how many, three or four. And people say, it's my life, I'll do what I want. Sorry, buddy, it's not your life. It's everybody's life. The decisions you make will affect others. But what about the one that got killed? It just goes to show that we are part of this fallen race. It goes back to this whole fallen race. Now, the question came to him was, why doesn't God suspend the laws of physics and save someone in a time like this? I think it's for the same reason. Because God, he said, will not pull people back from the brink. If they've chosen to go this way, he won't all of a sudden pull someone back from the brink. Especially if it's to self. To himself or herself that they've done this. But he also will not suspend the laws of physics in the sense that every time someone is in this predicament, he's going to intervene and stop things from happening. Because he has chosen to give man free will. 
He's chosen to give man free will. And things will happen. Calamities will happen. Destruction will happen. But when it does happen, what did he say? Psalm 90. God sends men to destruction. When he says sends men to destruction, it could mean that, that he will punish people on this earth. There, there will be a punishment for their sins, like he did with Nebuchadnezzar and the Edomites and the Amorites and the Ammonites for their sin. There's a punishment here and now. But he also allows these cataclysms, like Jesus said, these things happen, not because they were the worst of sinners, but he says, be careful. If you continue this way, you will also perish. And he says, return, ye sons of men, come back to God. Come back to God. The tsunami will not distinguish between a Christian and a non-Christian on the Tonga Island, as it did in Indonesia. Did not discern between who was good and who was bad. But God allows it to happen, doesn't intervene, and allows it so people can see this is your life. This is the human predicament. Come back to God. If God was like that, he could have prevented every single death of a martyr that gave their lives for Jesus Christ. And there were tens of thousands of martyrs during the first three centuries. Maybe hundreds of thousands of martyrs that died because of the name of Jesus Christ. Did God stop that? No. He allowed it to happen. Job didn't get much help from his wife. In the next chapter, you will see when more calamities came, she said, Job, give up. Curse God and die. Get out of your misery. But he would not. Because he believed God is good all the time. And though he slay me, I will yet trust him. I want to take you to uh, an account in the book of Mark. The book, the gospel according to St. Mark, chapter 4. This is the account where Jesus tells his disciples that he wanted to go from Capernaum to the other side, to the land of the Gergesites or the Gadarenes or the Gennesaret, depending which area or region you're talking about and which gospel writer wrote this. And he says... Let's pass over unto the other side. He gave him a command. And he told them, let's go to the other side. It was already night, I believe. And they 
thought, well, maybe thinking, why are we going there? But he said, let's go. We're going to the other side. So they get in. And when they had sent the multitudes away, which they had uh, tended to already, and there were other ships also that followed, there arose a great storm of wind. And the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow, and they wake him up and said, Master, don't you care that we are perishing? We're going to die. And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And then he said to them, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? You would think it was common sense. You would think that this was something natural that we should be doing with this big storm coming here. And now we're all asking Jesus, don't you care that we are perishing? Obviously, intrinsic to this to this question to the Lord Jesus obviously they knew he had power (coughs) in another incident whether before or after this I don't know there was another storm these storms were quite frequent on the lake of uh, Galilee the Sea of Galilee the cold winds coming from Hermon would mix in this big bowl, which is like six or seven hundred feet below sea level. We'll be mixing with a hot air there. And you'd get these turbulent windstorms that would cause the waves to, to surge in a matter of a half an hour. And they get caught in this, this, these windstorms. And Jesus comes now walking on the sea. He wasn't in the boat. He came walking on the sea. And Peter sees him. Said, Master, if it's you, bid me to come in too. To walk on water. And he did. And he began to walk. And when he saw he was boisterous and the winds about him, he, he began to sink. They saw his power, they saw his healing power. Later on, they saw his ability to give life to people, to open eyes earlier, perhaps. We did all these miracles in his first year of of ministry. And here they say, don't you care about us? And Jesus said, maybe like he did when he came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, wondering, how long am I going to be with you? How long have you seen my miracles? How long have you seen me in action? How long have you experienced the power of God? He says, why are you fearful? How is it that you have no faith? You just witnessed a miracle feeding. And now you ask a question? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly.
What does God require of us? To know all the answers? To know all the answers only when I know why you're doing what you're doing and how you're going to do it, then I will believe you. Well, then where is faith? Faith is seeing what God does as God sees it, not as we see it. As it says in Romans, if we have hope that is seen, then it's not hope at all. Faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And after having seen these miracles, as the children of Israel saw them in the wilderness, and they still had unbelief, every time something comes in, a new predicament, a new event, all of a sudden these questions, well, I haven't, I haven't seen this in your answer book for this particular predicament. Are we like that? Let me ask you a question, because it's happened in my life too. When there are crises in our lives, we seem to go to our knees far more often, with far more fervor, with far more passion, with pleading and tears. But when the storm's over, when the crisis is gone, oh, it's back to normal. I can take it easy. When do we prepare for war? During the battle or before the battle? If our soldiers, and I'm not condoning war, but if soldiers only prepared when they hear there's a war going on, they're hopeless. There's no hope. They're preparing way ahead of time, practicing, disciplining, teaching, indoctrinating. And what is it with us? When then the battle comes, when then the, the crisis comes, when the storm comes, our mind, that's what it says when it says, you know, quit, quit your loins, prepare yourself, arm yourselves with this mind. It comes ahead of the battle. It comes ahead of the persecution. It comes ahead of the trial. We arm ourselves. We brace ourselves. It could happen any minute and none of us are spared. That's what was going through my mind when I was on my knees in Kitchener. I wonder who's going to be the next one. But it doesn't matter who's going to be the next one. Am I praying unceasingly? Are my minds with them? Are my thoughts with them? Am I praying for the will of God? Am I willing to accept whatever the outcome is? Am I preparing myself? Not just the person that may be a victim. You know, this... I'll pass it on after this. I'll, this will be my final thought. This week... I was looking, got an email. Some of you know what this application is, LinkedIn. It's sort of a, a network for people that are looking for you know, jobs and so forth and advertising what's going on in, in, the, in, in your various careers and promotions and job openings and thoughts and stuff like that, right? And I got this 
one uh, panel that came up and it talked about pity, sympathy, empathy, and compassion. And I started thinking, whoa, I thought I knew the definitions of sympathy and empathy and compassion. But pity, why do they put pity in? Because I know there's a Psalm 103 that says, you know, as a father pitieth his children. But pity in this world's definition, and I'll get to that Hebrew definition, is really feeling sorry for someone. That's it. Doesn't go any further than that. You feel sorry for them. There's no emotional ties. It doesn't go any further. It stops there. And it could be condescending. Poor soul. Look, he must have been raised in a bad house. Or he must not have, you know, gone to school. Poor soul. And you walk off. Sympathy is to say... I sort of know what you're going through and I do feel sorry for you and you know but you leave it there it's very it's not as it's it's not as deep as empathy empathy is saying hmm I I see what you're going through I need to walk a mile in your shoes to know, and you're, you're getting drawn more closer uh, emotionally, and you, and, and you may want to follow up on that later on and read about his kind of situation. And... But compassion is what Jesus had. It's far greater than sympathy, not only empathetic, but it's coupled with the great desire and will to do something about that predicament. To stop, like the Good Samaritan, to bind up the wounds of the wounded, of the victim. And not to say he was just a Samaritan. He deserved it. But to go the extra mile, to pay the extra amount, to do whatever you can for the welfare of the victim. Now Jesus did that. He knew our plight. He knew our struggles. He knew our pain. He came down to earth to feel it. He felt it all. He wept. He wept with his people. And he told us to mourn with those that mourn. But he also told us to reach out to the needy, to the orphans, to the widows, to the sick, to the imprisoned, to the abused. Instead of questioning God, say, God, where were you? Maybe our prayers need to be, God, what can I do to improve this situation? How can you use me in that predicament? 
Have we ever thought about that, dear ones? Have we ever thought of people that are going through struggles and say, let me call you, let me call them, let me talk to them, let me ask them what they need. Can I help in some way? Offer them something. Then they feel that their weight is not as heavy as they thought it was. And that's the witness of many, many, many that have been prayed for. They know they've been prayed for. They feel that their weight, their burden has been lifted. Instead of saying, poor soul, he's got such a heavy weight. Where am I? The question, where is God? We think we're in control of their li- our lives. We think everything is going swimmingly well until something happens to us. And then we would plead, we would wish somebody could help us and help our heavy burden. Corey Ten Boom, she made a statement which I didn't really understand the full meaning of, but I think I do now. She said that with God, She serves him with an open hand. Because when God gives her things, if she clenches that so she doesn't lose it, it's far more painful when he takes it away from me. When he tries to pry open my fingers to take away the thing that he's given me. And that's what Job said. The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But we cling on earthly possessions. We cling on selfish things while others are suffering. And instead of encouraging them, we want to be encouraged. But I remember Brother Mike Bauman said many, many years ago, if you want to be encouraged, go and encourage someone else. And one reason, I may be wrong, that bad things happen to good people is I believe God wants our attention to see how we would deal with it. Instead of accusing God, instead of pointing the finger at God, he's pointing right back to us saying, what are you doing about it? How are you dealing with this situation? And being in the crucible. You know what a crucible is? It's a container you put ore in and you stick it in the oven. And you heat it up to hundreds and hundreds of degrees until it melts the metal. And you take it out. You separate the ore from the pure metal. And you become refined. When we are in the crucible of God, there's no better place to be. If it's going to make us closer and draw us closer to him, there's no better place to be. May the Lord bless his word. Will the brother find the hymn, please?
The book of Job is a very deep book. Read it for yourself. Try to follow the arguments. It's difficult. I'll boil it down to this. Job wanted God to explain himself to him. in a way that he would understand. That was wrong, because that was not the way that God chose to explain himself. Job's friends thought they understood God. That was their error, and that error was greater than the error of Job. God told Job that he should sacrifice on behalf of his, sons because, uh, on behalf of his friends because he was displeased with them. But this hymn we just sang explains it. Thou as a child draw near. If you want to understand God, you first need to look to Jesus. Jesus explained what that meant. And he said, you need to become as a little child. Why? A child has an uncomplicated understanding. God never designed us to use our minds to find him. There's one way that you can know God, and that's through the realm of the Spirit. To accept that, you need to actually set aside your intellect, not deny its existence, but realize that like using scaffolding to reach the moon, it's an impossibility. God never meant you to find him that way. This is why many that are intelligent in this world struggle so hard with understanding God because he never, under, he never meant for you to understand him with your mind as the sole way of justifying himself to you. He meant you to know him through his spirit. That's a mystery. To the world, in fact, it's foolishness. But what are your options? As God said to Job, he, he didn't really answer him. God, uh, Job asked God, God, explain yourself to me. He, he demanded it of him. Explain yourself to me. And God simply replied, where were you when I formed these things? What about this natural wonder or this creature? Can you understand them? What makes you so sure that you could even understand the answer if I could give it to you in a way you would be able to receive? He never meant it that way. Christ came to show us that God is a loving father. And so we need to come to him as children. And as children, we can partake now with the spirit of his son and know him in this way. May God add whatever is lacking to what was said. May he dismiss us with his blessing. This concludes our service. Amen.